Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the natural world, as observed through the lens of scientific method, when counting a person's age, we measure their lifespan against the time it takes for our planet to revolve around the sun. We observe and measure phenomena, but we do not observe or measure phenomena in literature perhaps especially in biblical literature. Instead, when dealing with a written text, we operate in an artificial environment architected by the hand of the author. The age, lineage, occupation, situation, even the name of the prophetess Anna as she appears in the story of Luke's gospel all have a functional meaning. To observe her age in the story is not to measure her lifespan using our planet's cyclical orbit or to ponder how a woman could live so long in those times. To observe her age in the story is to ask why the author chose the number 84 or mentioned any number at all in the first place. To note an observable artifact in literature is to ask why concerning every choice the author makes inside the universe of their artificial environment. In Luke chapter 2, this type of questioning leads to a curious possibility. Maybe it's Anna herself who desperately needs to be ransomed by Christ inside the Temple of Stone in Jerusalem. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, verses 36. To 38. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 467 of the Bible as Literature podcast when we began this discussion of the Gospel of Luke. We made it very clear that Luke was setting up the temple in the infrastructure of his text, not the infrastructure of the world, because Luke is not dealing with history. There is no temple at the time of Luke's writing. It has already been destroyed. But because we human beings are naturally naturally, inherently, intuitively pagan, we need to have a reference in stone in order to transfer authority with respect to our deities. And so even though there is no temple, even though it's all gone, it's all been left in ruins, Luke still has to re-architect it in the text in order to destroy it in the mind of his addressee, Theophilus, who is 
the supposed lover of God, dwelling among the Gentiles in the church of the Gentiles, the addressee of his monologue to the church. With that in mind, it's important as we hear on the Feast of the Presentation, ironically, as we hear this continued teaching about the uncovering of the Torah to the Gentiles, and now as we move from Simeon to the prophetess Anna, it's critical that we don't think about Jerusalem as a physical infrastructure being, quote, ransomed or redeemed. That's not what we're talking about. And we'll come to that in the terminology in just a few minutes. We are talking once again about the movement of God's instruction in order to ransom his people. If we are talking about Jerusalem, it's not a Jerusalem made by the hand of man, architected in stone. This is how scripture undermines human institutions. It begins with scripture, then it supposes a human institution, and then it undermines it. That's how it works. In the beginning, there were no institutions. There were no cities. Cities were only invented by Cain. Then David wanted to start the city, Jerusalem. The Lord allowed him to create Jerusalem with his own hands, to build it with his own hands. And then God did with it what he wanted, which was just to make a point. Yet, because human beings are what they are, they kept looking to this city as the reference point. They wanted it to be the city of David, the city of God, the city of Israel, whatever they wanted to call it. So throughout the Psalms, it talks more and more about Zion and the city of Zion and Jerusalem of Zion. And this is how it moves this other realm. Zion, which Father Paul talks about, is a reference to shepherdism and to the desert. You can see his etymologies there and how he connects them. But when the people come to Jerusalem looking for a particular result or are hoping for a particular result, it's because they believe in the institution, which is fantastic for God because they come in looking for the institution, which sets them up to have the rug pulled out from under them. When Luke Skywalker stands in front of Jabba the Hutt and he gets him to stand just so, and then whoop, he opens the trap door under him so that he gets him exactly where he wants him. This is how the author of Luke is setting up the reader because this redemption, this salvation, it's supposed to be King David marching triumphantly with his army into Jerusalem, looking like a different Rome made up of non-Romans, but it's just as Roman, it's just as pagan, it's just as Gentile as anything else. So the redemption and the salvation that God has in mind undermines that entire imagery, the entire pageantry, the entire showcase of human strength. And so the redemption that the people are going to be looking for is going to be undermined as well. We have this declaration that this baby coming into the temple represents the beginning of the salvation that's coming, but people are going to understand it wrong. And Anna is going to at least for a moment, try to explain it correctly, 
But in the end, it's going to end up the way it ends up. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fasting and prayers. This very odd translation handled so poorly in English, seven years after her marriage. What does that mean? It simply means that from the time of her virginity, she was with her husband seven years, meaning she was married seven years. When you read it in English, it just seems so strange. Just listen, just listen to it for a minute in English. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Okay. Does that mean after her marriage ended? What are you talking about? So if you look at the Greek, it means from the time of her virginity, she was with him for seven years. That's it. It doesn't say marriage. Notice, in a way, the bias. If she was a virgin and then lost it, there must have been a marriage somewhere in there. So that must mean after her marriage. That's not what the text says. The text says from the time of her virginity, she was with her husband seven years. It's a small point. Maybe, maybe not. Why would you put the word marriage when it's not there in the Greek? Not only is it ad-libbing, but it's actually confusing in translation. The other point here is that she was a widow to the age of 84. It begs the question, why 84? I know I'm supposed to say, well, maybe she was just 84. I disagree. We're dealing with a text. There has to be a reason that Luke said 84 and not 83. Why not 82? He is architecting a story. Now, one thing that I find interesting, especially because we're dealing with, in part, the Exodus story, and in the story of Simeon, there are overtones of Exodus imagery and the transfer of Israel from bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt to bondage to God in the wilderness. It's interesting that Moses's brother, the priest Aaron, was 83 years old when Moses appeared before Pharaoh, demanding, or rather delivering God's demand in Exodus chapter 7, that the people be set free from bondage to become the slaves of God. But one year later, Aaron was 84, when the people of God celebrated the first Passover outside of Egypt. Is there a connection? Is there a connection with this notion of the celebration of Passover and the transfer of slavery from the old master to the new master, vis-a-vis -vis not just the people of Israel, not just those who are held in bondage in Jerusalem, but also now through Jesus Christ, all of those who are held in bondage among the nations. 
I'm just raising the question, Richard, because you don't put a number 84 there just because you pulled 84 out of the air. It has to be there for a reason. You're right. Some might say she's 80 because she was neither 83 nor 85. She was 84. What's the big deal? But why mention it at all? Isn't it enough to say she was an old widow? What are we losing from the story if we say she was an old widow? Nothing. We can tell the story perfectly. So why add this piece of information? Why mention that it was the daughter of Fanuel, of Asher? Why mention these things? You can just say she was an old widow from the people of Israel. That's enough. At the same time, Fanuel comes from Panuel, which either means they turn to God or God turns. So this can be something that parents say when they receive favor from the Lord in order to have this child. But it can mean that she wants people to turn towards God. So that's why she is entrusted to go and tell people about what she overheard in the temple because people evidently keep coming into the temple to hear more of what God is teaching, and she happens to mention this to them. So they turn to God, or she turned to God, or God turns. So there's something about God turning in the name. But the age as well, 84. Now, as Father Paul often says, do we know for certain that that's why 84 is used? No, but you can't say that it isn't so. You can't say that Aaron was not 83. He was 83 when he left. You can't say that Aaron wasn't a prophet because, in fact, he was the prophet for Pharaoh, functioning as prophet with Moses functioning as God. This is the explanation that God gives on their mission to overturn the Egyptians. This is something that she does as well. She's the one who is functioning as a prophet. So 84 does link her to Aaron the priest and her who never leaves the temple, always serving night and day. So we have these connections with Aaron. We have these connections with the message and the function that she upholds in the story. So why this father? Why this age? Because they're functional. They reinforce the fact that she is here to serve as a prophet to continue this message, even in the temple. Even in the temple, you need prophets to teach. If it were enough to have a temple, you could just do sacrifices. But evidently, performing the sacrifices was not enough, and God even intervened there by installing his own prophetess in the temple. And in a way, Rich, she's trapped in the temple under the law. She is as much duty-bound and honor-bound as Simeon was before his passing. Because what are you to do in Jerusalem before the Lord's anointed appears? What are you to do? Israel's purpose, as Paul outlines in his letter to the Romans, is fulfilled. And Israel's sin is lifted up as an example so that through the example of their sin, the cautionary tale, the teaching of God is now opened up to everybody, and everybody understands what happens when you don't follow the teaching of God. That is the satirical story of the Old Testament. That's the genius of the Pharisaic tradition. Let's write a story that makes fun of ourselves for the sake of our people, and the others. 
That is the folly of the modern world. Everyone's trying to defend their identity. The scriptural writers have a leg up on everyone because they are mocking themselves for the sake of their own people and for the life of the world. So Anna is stuck. Simeon got the better half of the bargain. He's gone. She's an old woman and she's stuck. So she's counting on Jesus for redemption from slavery. But she remains faithful under the law in the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. It's powerful when you hear this text against the mechanism of the Old Testament. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of or in Jerusalem. Now, I said of or in because depending on which translation you pick up, they all trip over this because it's not clear in the Greek. And I want to point this out because, as I indicated at the beginning of the episode, Luke is not interested in ransoming a city built by the hand of man in stone. Ultimately, we're talking about ransoming God's people, the consolation of Israel, the redemption of his people earlier in Luke. So it may be a play on language that the people are expecting the redemption of Jerusalem or in Jerusalem, referring to the city in a metaphoric sense. But we're not talking about a constructed, physical, earthly city in a political sense, the way that we talk about Minneapolis or St. Paul and putting a deflector shield over it so a bomb doesn't destroy buildings. That's not what's going on here. It's literally the ransoming of Anna herself, whose name, by the way, is, for example, in Arabic, when you say John, you say Hannah. It's the same name as John. It means grace. She herself represents the grace, which is the ransom from the captivity she's suffering from in the story. She herself is the one in Jerusalem who represents those in Jerusalem who are to be ransomed from captivity, which is the function of Christ in the story. And here in Greek, all we have is waiting for redemption Jerusalem. That's literally what we have. So that's why this is so confusing. There is no of, there is no in. It's simply redemption Jerusalem. When we have this statement made by Simeon, the light to the Gentiles and the glory of your people. In the Minor Prophets, we have Jerusalem that's finally the place where the Torah is going to be taken seriously, where people follow it. Those residents will be Israel because, by definition, they are faithful to his teaching. The Gentiles are going to see that as a light and want to move towards it. They're not moving towards Israel, the people. They're not moving towards these great examples of humanity. They're moving to this city that is in God's possession. When the people come into Jerusalem to look for redemption, they want to march their own army in as they march the Roman army out. But as we know, for Anna, what does it matter? 
She goes to the temple and she fasts day and night. So if the Romans control, if Jerusalem, the Israelites control, what does it matter to her? She's there to serve. The only difference is, are the people obedient? And this is the redemption of Israel. This is the redemption of Jerusalem, that Jerusalem will finally be the home of those who are obedient to Torah, as opposed to the home of the brood of vipers who live there now, who don't follow Torah, who don't teach Torah. This is the redemption of the city so that it might be the place for this people to finally live. Now, is it all members of Israel? No way. Is it all members of the Gentiles? No. But whether Jew or Gentile, it's going to be the place for those to dwell who are obedient to Torah. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.